Colossians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. It's our second look at this passage and what a privilege it is to sit and hear these perfect and life-changing words. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be every, everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Father, now as we come to your word, God, we ask that you give us eyes to see wonderful things here, that our hearts would love the gospel that is on display here. Father, I pray that you work in all of our hearts. Lord, if you don't work this morning, then nothing will be done. We recognize our need for spirit, spiritual change by the, the power of your spirit. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That means good news. I'm not ashamed of the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Five hundred years ago, there was a Catholic monk who had this text open to him, who hated the book of Romans because he could not understand how the words good news in chapter 16 could be good news if in it, the righteousness of God was revealed. This Catholic monk had a sensitive heart to his sin. He was a monk. He was one of the best monks who took his faith more serious than almost any other. So that when he would go to confess his sins 
to the priest. He would walk away and be sure that surely he forgot some sin. And God knows all things. And if God knows all things, then surely the righteousness of God cannot be good news to Him. You might have guessed that this was Martin Luther. And so as he came to this text, this is what Luther said in his own words. Here is his, is his struggle. He says, quote, I had cert- certainly wanted to understand Paul in his letter to the Romans, but what prevented me from doing so was not so much cold feet as that one phrase in the first chapter. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. Romans 1.17 For I hated that phrase, the righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand as the righteousness by which God is righteous and punishes unrighteous sinners. Although I lived a blameless life as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner with an uneasy conscience before God. I could not believe that I had pleased Him by my works. Far from loving that righteousness God, or that righteous God who punishes sinners, I actually hated Him. I was in desperation to know what Paul meant in this passage. So he would hear the words, the righteousness of God, and it would bring about hatred for God. For this is the place where he was exposed. But then he says this, At last, as I meditated day and night on the relation of the words, the righteousness of God is revealed in it, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I began to understand that the righteousness of God or that righteousness of God as that by which the righteous person lives by the gift of God, faith. This sentence, the righteousness of God, is revealed to refer to a passive righteousness by which the merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written. The righteous person lives by faith. This immediately made me feel as though I had been born again, as though I had entered through the open gates into paradise itself. From that moment, I saw the whole face of Scripture in a new light. And now, where I had once hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, I began to love and extol it as the sweetest of phrases. So that this passage in Paul became the very gate of paradise to me. He began to love the righteousness of God when he realized it was revealed in time. It was a passive righteousness. 
It wasn't a standard that he had to accomplish in order to be saved, but rather it was a person in Jesus Christ who lived the life Martin Luther could never live. The only one who never sinned. And to realize God gives the gift of righteousness and faith to the believer. For the first time in his life, he could experience the righteousness of God in a way that caused him to praise God. It was no longer the thing that guaranteed his judgment, but it was the very thing that guaranteed his salvation. Because Luther was so tormented by his sin and, and, and miserable to the point of death, the rest of his life, this hindered his theology actually. Luther didn't go on to write about other doctrines of Scripture that much like Calvin did because he couldn't get past this one thing. There's one thing. The righteous shall live by faith. He wasn't going to leave it. He didn't want to preach other sermons because here is where paradise was opened to him. Now, if you remember, we're back in Galatians now. It's been a month since we've been there um, because of Easter, and I was gone on Sunday. So we're back in Galatians. Let me just remind us a little bit of the context. Remember, Paul went on his first missionary journey um, up through the southern parts of Galatia, and he planted churches. Some of the first believers ever in those Gentile territories were formed. And as he went through, he was preaching this message, that they should trust in God by faith. They shouldn't leave the faith that they were saved by faith. He knew the temptation was going to be to live by works and not according to faith. As he's going through these towns, preaching the gospel, persecutors started following him to the point where he got stoned and they thought he was dead. But they drug him outside of town. He revived and then what did he do? He went right back to the towns where the persecutors came from because he wanted to go minister to those first Christians that had just gotten saved and he encouraged them and he warned them again, do not leave the faith. So as Paul returns home, right away he gets word that Judaizers had come into these churches. Now, the Judaizers were those who claimed to trust Christ, claimed to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they said you could not be saved by faith alone, but you needed to be circumcised according to the law to be saved. You also had to live according to the law. And so we talked about how Jesus plus anything equals nothing. 
unless Christ is it to be received by faith, then you get nothing. So Paul writes this letter to convince them, to try to convince them not to go with these false teachers that are trying to lead them back into slavery. So we looked at these four verses a month ago. We only got through the first couple. And today we're going to focus on verses 13 and 14. But let's look at verse 10. Let's just remember what he says here. His argument now is this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. That doesn't sound like a very good program. You want to rely on the works of the law? You'll be under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. The reason why you're under a curse, if you try to live under the works of the law by your own human goodness, the reason why you're under a curse, he argues, is because if you sign up for that system, you have to live by all of it. And you can't mess up. You remember, this is where I illustrated the guy who comes to the Valley Fair and, and, uh, and I gave the illustration of, of this opportunity to come up and shoot free throws into a hoop. And here's the deal. You have to make two billion free throws in a row. You can't miss one. If you miss one, you'll die. And we were talking about how foolish it would be to to shoot those free throws. But imagine if a guy came up, he heard this crowd just screaming. He went over there. He says, what's going on? And they said, this guy just made two billion free throws in a row. And he earned a card that promised eternal life. And you're like, no way! Who did it? Well, that guy right over there. That guy comes over to you, walks by you and says, hey, i got a gift for you. I want to give you this. And you look at the card, eternal life, and you look at the game, two billion free throws, and you think to yourself, well, I'm pretty good. Here, buddy, you keep your card. I'm going to shoot the free throws. This is what the Galatian church is being tempted to do. Put themselves under a curse by trying to earn their salvation by being good enough. It's craziness. And then he just flat out says in verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified, that means found not guilty, before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Uh, If you remember, I also talked about how my daughter Eden, what what does she always say now? She always say, I do it. It doesn't matter what we do. And she says it just like that. I do it. I do it. She gets mad. And it's cute, and it's even kind of funny, except I know there's theology behind that. She's not born saying, I'm needy, I need you. 
You're smarter than me. You're more wise than me. She's born with the same heart you and I were born with. Born in sin. Blinded to the fact, thinking, I can do it. I can do it on my own. But here's his argument in verses 13 and 14. The sermon's actually very simple, and the message is real simple in this text. It's simply this. He wants to remind them that Christ redeemed us. That's what he wants them to remember. Christ redeemed us. If you look at your notes there in your bulletin, I want to think through these three words before we ask three questions to it. First, Christ. There's a blank there for you. You can write, not me. Christ redeemed us. You did not redeem you. And I did not redeem me. But he says, Christ redeemed us. What does redeemed mean? Already set free. Christ already set free us. This is a good argument to the Galatian church. You're going to go submit to slavery under the law in which you're guaranteed to fail when Christ already set free us. You see, it's the temporal, the temporality of these words matter. That's why in verse uh, 3, Galatians 3.3, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? He says, you heard me preach the Gospel, and you were saved, and you were filled with the Spirit, and now you're going to go back to works? Same sort of argument. Except in this argument, he's saying, back 2,000 years ago, Christ redeemed us. It's a simple argument. What are you doing? You're free. You're already free. And us in particular here, the surprising thing is he's talking to Gentiles who are being told, you can't be saved unless you follow the Jewish law. And Paul's saying, no, Christ redeemed us, me and you already. It's not something you have to accomplish. It's already been accomplished. It wasn't accomplished by you. It was accomplished before you were born. Christ redeemed us. From what? Let's ask the question. 
From what? From the curse of the law. So we just talked about why the law is a curse. Because if you want to live according to the law, you have to do the law. And not just do parts of it. You know, what legalistic people who want to live according to the law, their fundamental problem is they're not legalistic enough. You see, they make rules that are obtainable to themselves. The problem is, if you want to be legalistic, you better take God's rules and God's laws, and I'm going to tell you something. Then you won't like being legalistic so much. When God cares about the heart, your thoughts and intentions. Now all of a sudden it's not so fun being a legalist. You know, if it's about how long your dress is, or whether you can have a TV or not, or whether all these other things, well, maybe you can accomplish that. But if you want to live according to the law, you better live according to God's law. And I'm just here to tell you, you will be under a curse. But we're told here that Christ redeemed us from it. And so the question that we have to think about is how? This is a huge problem. A problem no other religion knows how to solve. If you go ask Muslims if their God is good, they're going to tell you, yes. Is He holy? Yes. Is He perfect? Yes. Well, there's a problem. Are you sinful? Yes. How are you going to take care of that problem? The biggest question, I know you've heard me say this a hundred times, but it's what the whole Bible is about, is how in the world can God, who's good, holy, just, He's perfect, He's holy, He's just, He's a judge, how can He ever save sinners? It seems like He either has to sacrifice His righteousness, His justice, His glory, in order to save somebody. It'd be like this. Your sin and my sin is against God. Personally, it's a personal offense against God. So God has a choice. If He wants to forgive you by taking your sins and throwing them under the rug, well, you can call Him a forgiving God, but you can't call Him a glorious God anymore because now the offense for offending the God of the universe is shuffle sins under the rug. His glory is gone. His justice is gone. Everybody knows that a judge, a good judge, is going to bring about justice. So how can God be just and forgiving? That's the question of the whole Bible. How can you be saved and God remain glorious? We get the answer in these words. By 
becoming a curse for us. How can you be redeemed from your slavery to sin and the fearful expectation of judgment, which is a curse on you? Remember we talked about how miserable... If you knew at the end of the day you were going to be tortured to death, the rest of your day is going to feel like a curse. You're going to walk around in fear all day long expecting judgment at the end of the day. But Christ redeemed us already by becoming a curse for us. It's the substitutionary atonement that allows God to remain just and forgive you and I. If He didn't take the curse in our place, we would have no hope. This is what Martin Luther realized. That Christ's death was a death in which He took our place, becoming a curse. And Luther recognized He not only took our sins, but He gave us righteousness when He saved us. Let me give you a few verses that illustrate this substitutionary atonement. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So, Sam Ellison. I got a name tag. There's a judge. It's time for judgment. Jesus Christ comes and takes my name tag, stands in my place, and takes the curse for my sins. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That He might bring us to God by being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Last week we talked about how Jesus' death was our death. When we trust by faith in Him, we're united to Him in His death. We're united to Him in His resurrection. Our redemption that's already taken place took place because Christ died for sin. He took the punishment for it. He destroyed fear because He conquered death. No longer do we need to live in shame, in guilt, in a fearful expectation of judgment, for Christ has paid the price as our substitute and has been raised from the dead. If you have your Bibles, I, I want to show you probably one of the most important if you can say that about Scripture, texts in the New Testament. Romans 3. And we're going to start reading in verse 21. Actually, let's start in verse 20. Romans 3. Verse 20. 
For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is good, you're not. The law comes to show you you're under a curse. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, been put forth, been revealed to us. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, are found not guilty by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the word, redeemed. Redemption whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Propitiation means, in the most simple terms, wrath satisfier. It's like a wrath sponge. There are sins here that are going to experience the wrath of God because God is just. They have to. Every sin will be punished. Jesus Christ was put forth to redeem us and to be put forward as a propitiation, as a wrath absorber, so that our sins get punished in Jesus Christ. And all that wrath is drank down by Christ. That's what propitiation means. And then he says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. God looks on righteous when He's patient with sinners. Right now, there's sinners in Aberdeen. They don't love God. They haven't loved God yet in their life. And they're sinning, and they're sinning, and they're sinning, and they're still living. They get to see the same sunset you and I get to see. They get to experience vacations and food and all sorts of blessings. And they're thinking in their mind, God must not punish sin. But we're already warned in Romans chapter 2, not to presume upon the riches of God's patience that He has with sinners. Just because God's patient with you doesn't mean wrath isn't coming for your sins. For He says, you're all storing up wrath for yourself for judgment day. The the picture, I don't know if you've ever been to the Rushmore water slides. I think they're closed down now. But on the Black Hills, there's uh, these hills that water slides that go down them. And behind some of the slides, there's this clear tube of water that fills up like eight feet tall. And when you sit down on the slide, they push the button, and that water shoots you down the slide. Well, when I read Romans 2, and I read that we're storing up wrath for the day of wrath, what I picture is, is everybody's walking around with a tube above their head of wrath filling up 
one day we'll face God. And the question is, is has Christ emptied your tube because you've trusted in Him by faith or not? But it appears to the world that God's unjust because these sinners are doing this. God's not striking them with the bolt of lightning. What's going on? How could God love David and Abraham when they were both sinners? That's why the righteousness of God was in question when we, when, when we see uh, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It looked like He wasn't going to judge those sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Here's what the cross did. This is God's way of saying, I didn't do this in a corner. I did it publicly in the most religious city on the face of the earth. I put my son up on that cross. And when he was hanging there, innocent, dying under the wrath of God, one of the things I was screaming out is, I am righteous. All sins get punished. When sins are on my son... He dies. And so God was putting forth at this present time His righteousness so that God could show the world how He could say, I'm a good judge and I will punish sin and I will forgive you. Only Christianity can answer the question, how can a sinner be made right to a holy God. Only through the substitute can we be made right to God. So He redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by taking our place. Why? Let's ask this last question here. Why? Look at what he says. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The first reason Christ died is so that God would fulfill His promise to Abraham. Now God gave several promises to Abraham. Let me read Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land which I'll show you. God gave Abraham land. And I'll make you a great nation. He's going to give him a huge family. And third, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. One of the reasons Jesus took our place, becoming a curse for us, is so that as a child from Abraham's line, blessing can come even to the Gentiles. Remember, this letter is written to a group of people who are being told, 
God isn't going to bless you unless you live according to the law of Moses. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Christ died so that he could fulfill his promise to Abraham so that you can receive the blessing. All of Abraham's blessings. This blessing is repeated all throughout Genesis. In Genesis 18, 17, God reaffirms it. The Lord said, I shall hide from Abraham what I'm, or shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And then he reaffirms it to Isaac. I'll multiply your offspring as, as the stars of the heaven and give, give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then he reaffirms it to Jacob. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And you and your offspring shall make all the families of the earth be blessed. The promise to Abraham was fulfilled when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for Jews and Gentiles. The second reason we see in this text is so we could receive the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says. You have two so that's. So that in Christ... In union with Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And then the second one, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. You see, the ultimate blessing is receiving the Spirit of God. You can live according to the law by faith in your own power, or you can live according to the Spirit by faith in God's power in you, in Christ. See, there's two ways to live. By faith in yourself or by faith in Christ. If you live by faith in yourself, you have to live according to the law. Here's the problem. The law is weak. It's good. It just has no power in it. What the law can do is tell you, you are in trouble. We'll just say that. That's nicer. You're in big trouble. That's what the law can do. It has no power to make you live a godly life. But if you live by faith in Christ, you're given the promise of the Spirit which has power not only to forgive you, to unite you with Christ in His death and resurrection, but also to empower you to live a new life. And so he's saying to the Gentiles, what do, you, do you not know you're free? And you have the power in your union with Christ? You know, I was just watching uh, one of these Animal Planet shows this week with my girls, and these two bucks were fighting and they got their antlers caught. And so they called the Game Fish and Parks uh, 
guys to come out and see if they can free him. Well, one of the deer was dead. The other one was really tired and, and was almost dead. And they came in with a saw and they had to saw the antler off. And so they free the deer and the deer's sitting there. And he was fighting them while they were trying to free it. But now he's free and he's just sitting there. And they're like poking the deer like, you're free. Go. Go. And he just sat there for a while. And then all of a sudden it like dawned on him. I'm not caught anymore. This is what Paul's saying to the churches in Galatia. You're already redeemed. You're already free. Live for God in the power of the Spirit. Don't go back to the place where you had no power and where you were living under a curse. Live in the freedom of your salvation. Or it reminds me when Ella was little and we took her out of the crib and she's like, she's pretty little, put her in the queen size bed in her bedroom. And it's like she didn't know she could get out. It was like the best thing ever. Because she would just lay there and she'd wait for us to get her. Now our other daughters figured out when they're in a bed like that, they can get up at six in the morning and come wake us up. But Ella didn't know she was free even though she wasn't in the crib anymore. In the same way, we can forget. Now, I highly doubt that someone's going to come up to you this week and try to convince you not to trust in the grace of Christ, but to submit to a law of slavery. Like, I doubt that's going to just be the proposition on the table, but I guarantee you, you're going to have to battle it this week. It's way more subtle, but you're going to have to battle it. So let me help you see this. You see, if, if we just preach a sermon and you say, oh, that's good and right, but you don't know what to do with it, well, what good is it unless we know how the Word of God applies to us and not just to them? So first, in application, remember God saved you to produce fruit for His glory. Let me give you a few texts. John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anything you attempt to do this week apart from God is just as stupid as these Galatian new believers thinking they're going to try to do it by their own strength and their own power according to the law. And then a few verses later in John 15, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So here's one of the things I'm saying to you. Live this week. Why were you saved to glorify God by producing fruit unto His glory? How do you produce fruit unto His glory? When you live according to His power by faith in Christ. Here's the way Peter says the same thing. He bore our sins 
in his body on the tree. That's, that's substitution. That, here's the purpose, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So live. Remember God saved you to produce fruit, not to earn your salvation, but to bring glory to Him. Um, second, recognize when you are living by faith in your own identity rather than your identity with Christ. Now this is a little more tricky. This is a little more biblical counseling-esque, you could say. Do you know how to recognize when you're not living by faith in Christ and when you're living by faith in your own identity? You see, everyone in this room has the ability to live according to your own image of who you are, to answer that question for yourself. Everyone's asking this question, who am I? When you get up in the morning to put a shirt on, you're answering that question. Which shirt, which shirt are you going to pick? When you enter into a social setting, am I, you have a conception in your mind. I'm shy. I'm not very talkative. I'm outgoing. I need to be smart. I fill in the blank. We all answer the question of who I am in various ways. And so the question is, how do you know when you're living according to that picture and not the picture of who God says you are in Christ? Well, I'm going to give you a few symptoms here. When you find yourself worrying what others think, it's a sure sign that you're living according to your identity in yourself. See, in your self-identity, it's like, it's like this cup of water here. On a good day, if you're an outgoing person, well, you just nail it then when you're with the group. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, you're just on top of all the talk topics. Everyone loves being around you. You're bubbly. Oh, I did pretty good today. Problem is, you'll never fill this cup up. You'll never be able to do it well enough. You'll never be able to fill it up. But if you believe in who you are in Christ, well, our identity isn't based off our performance. It's gifted to us in our union with Christ. And this is always overflowing. If this is always overflowing, then the way you respond to me doesn't enslave me anymore. If there's a, if, if there, if there's a group of people who treat me badly, but I'm overflowing with my identity in Christ, I can go back to this group day after day and sincerely love them because I don't need to get my identity from them. So if you find yourself worrying about what people think about you, it's a sure sign that you're not a living according to your identity in Christ who tells you who you are. The most valuable being in the universe tells you who you are. Another sure sign is that you're easily broken when people don't respond to you the way you think they ought to. You're in need of affirmation. You do something, you know? Maybe you cook a meal and people haven't responded yet. 
And you need to say, so how are the potatoes? Maybe you sincerely want to know, or maybe you want to hear, you're a great cook and that's so good. But you just get to be free from all that if you have your identity in Christ. You don't need affirmation from others when the God of the universe says, you're my son, you're my daughter. I've gifted you righteousness. I love you. In fact, Jesus, when he was ascending into heaven, it's as if he's saying to his disciples, I'm going to think so much about you because I love you that when I go there, though I'm away, I'm doing something. I'm getting your bedroom ready. Don't think I go up there and forget about you. That's what God says to us. Um, If you find yourself easily angered, insecure, lacking prayer, but having a ton of self-determination, these are all warning signs that you're doing it in your own strength. So recognize when you're not living by faith in your union with Christ. And thirdly, and um, is, is simply this, remember who you are. This is what Paul is continually saying to Christians. Remember who you are. That's what he's saying to the Galatian church. Don't you know you're already redeemed? So live like it. Live in the power of the Spirit. Live overflowing with sacrificial love because your love tank is already full by Christ. You don't need it from everyone else. Yes, it's a blessing if someone's nice to you. They don't have to be nice to you for you to love them back when you're full in Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray that our union with Christ in His substitutionary death and atonement and then His subsequent resurrection, Lord, I pray that would change the way we live. I pray it would change the way we love people. I pray it would change the way we evaluate our emotions. Lord, I pray it'll keep us from trying to earn our standing with you or with others. Father, I pray that you help us live in the freedom of the Spirit according to your word that you might be glorified in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.